Welcome to Practical Christian Living. What? What? You couldn't watch with me for an hour? I didn't ask you to pray all night. I didn't ask you to watch all night. I asked you to watch for an hour. What, you couldn't watch with me for an hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. This tells us that prayer helps us face temptation. If that is the only thing that we gained from prayer, it is worth us praying. How do we know what the will of God is for our lives? We discover that through prayer. But in today's busy, hectic world, making prayer a priority means we have to slow down, turn off the TV, put down our phone, and be still before Him. We are looking at the appointment Jesus had with the disciples in the garden where He prayed and asked His disciples to pray with Him. Prayer is essential in order for us to get to know Jesus well and to be victorious in this spiritual battle we face daily. With more from Matthew 26, verses 36 through 56, here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Part of our prayer is to find out what God wants. And it took me a long time as a Christian to discover if God wanted something for me, I wanted it. And if God didn't want something for me, I didn't want it. Can anybody say amen to that? If God doesn't want it for me, I don't want it, even if I want it. And that sounds confusing, but I know you're tracking with me. You still want it, but you know God doesn't want it for you. And so you're saying, whatever your will is. I love what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said when they were getting ready to be thrown into the fire, remember? They said, our God will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will serve him. That should be the heart and the attitude of every believer. Our God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we will serve him. Not my will, God, but your will be done. And part of it is finding out what his will is. In fact, the Bible tells us that if we pray anything according to his will, he hears us. And if he hears us, we have the things that he has asked for us in the book of 1 John. So then we come to verse 40. Then he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me for an hour? And I laugh at that because a lot of times the New King James that I use doesn't sound like, doesn't sound like today's English at all. It's said in such a way that sounds foreign. But this sounds like today. Like somebody, what? What? You couldn't watch with me for an hour? I didn't ask you to pray all night. I didn't ask you to watch all night. I asked you to watch for an hour. What, you couldn't watch with me for an hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. This tells us that prayer helps us face temptation. If that is the only thing that we gained from prayer, it is worth us praying that we would be able to win over temptation. Could you not watch with me for an hour lest you enter into temptation? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I don't point my finger at Peter and go cluck my tongue at him or judge him because I've slept when I'm supposed to pray. I used to get up early in the morning to pray, and I found myself doing that more and more as I get older. Those of you who are older, you understand that, right? Sleep seems to evade us in the morning as we get older. But when I was younger, I would try to get up in the morning and pray. And I would go into my study, and I would get my coffee, and I would open up my Bible, 
And I would start to read the passage and I would start to pray while I was reading. And then I would put my head on the edge of the Bible and I would wake up with a crease across the top of my forehead because I just couldn't stay awake. What is it about what is it about prayer that when we begin to enter into it, it just seems to be such a struggle to do? I've got to think there's some spiritual warfare going on. I've got to think the enemy knows I don't want this man, this woman praying. I want them sleeping. I want them thinking about something else. I want them anything but praying. That's why I said earlier that I like to take a walk sometimes when I pray because I can't fall asleep when I'm walking. And if I walk out 20 minutes, I gotta walk back 20 minutes. So you walk out, and it's interesting when I do walk and pray that I kind of just am quiet with them for the first few minutes. I'm just walking with God, quieting my heart, entering into his presence, walking along with him before I ever start pouring out my heart to him. And the Bible says, don't rush into the presence of God. Sometimes we're so quick, you know, I've got to get the prayer done. Let's go. Instead of being able just to step back and be still and know that he is God. And when we do, there are a few things that will happen. One of them is we are watching when we're praying. Maybe when we pray, why did Jesus say watch? Because somehow spiritually we're able to watch what's taking place, to consider what's happening. And we aren't going through life prayerless. If we're watching, maybe we'll be able to see some of the things coming our way and be able to respond to them correctly. Lest you be tempted, he said, which we've talked about that already. Then the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we have to get disciplined in our prayer. It's got to turn into a habit, something that we do regularly. And I'm not saying something, I'm not trying to lay a trip on you guys that is heavy and burdensome. I'm not trying to gomer pile you. A lot of preachers do. Shame, shame, shame. I'm right in the same boat with you. God has been speaking to me recently about reigniting my prayer life, making it deeper, making it more effective. That's something God's doing personally with me. God's been saying, it's not good enough for me. I want more. Or I'm just feeling drawn to do that more. And I hope that that's the case with you right now. I hope God's laying that on your heart, not as some kind of heavy burden, like, oh gosh, now I gotta, now I gotta find time to pray. But that you say, I'm, I'm missing something if I don't. And it's worth carving out some time. And it doesn't have to be this huge amount of time, just carving out some time. So you are spending time with him. He encouraged his disciples to pray. And I believe that he encourages us to pray as well. In verse 42, again, a second time he went and he prayed, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it. Let me read that right. Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them sleeping again and their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same words. And he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping, resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed. So Jesus prayed this prayer three times. He didn't just pray it once. He prayed it three times. I heard someone say one time that if you pray the same prayer more than once, it's a lack of faith. 
wrong. Wrong, 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 and wrong. And wrong. And wrong. If you pray the prayer over and over again, you're praying in faith. You're praying for God's will. And the Bible says through faith and patience, we inherit the promises of God. I don't know that I have all of the answers to why God wants us to persist in prayer or to, or to, to persist or to inherit through patience the promises of God. I, I think faith has something to do with it. God wants us to stay true and God wants us to, to hang in there until we receive from God what he wants from us. But I do know that Jesus taught us that. He talked about the annoyed neighbor. Remember the parable of the annoyed neighbor? I don't remember what the official name is, so I'm just using that one. A guy has a neighbor, has a friend come visit him at, at nighttime and he doesn't have any bread to give him. So he goes to his friend, his neighbor, and he knocks on his door, he says, give me some bread. And the neighbor says, go away. It's late, I'm in bed, the kids are in bed, go away. But he keeps knocking. Finally, the neighbor gets up and gives him bread, throws it out the window at him. Doesn't say that, but that's what I picture. Not because he was a friend giving him bread, but because he was annoyed. So what, does God get annoyed with us? Is it like we're supposed to be the squeaky wheel? Just start praying until God's like, please stop. Just quit. Fine, I'll give it to you. It's not a parable of comparison. He's not being compared to the annoyed neighbor. It's a parable of contrast. That if an annoyed neighbor will finally get up when someone won't stop knocking on their door and give them what they want, how much more will your heavenly father who loves you give you what you are looking for according to his will when you keep asking? Don't give up in prayer. Don't give up on your kids. Don't give up on, on what you're going through. Don't give up on the struggle, but continue to pray. Jesus prayed three times. We could say he prayed until he felt confident that he had gotten an answer from God. Pray through, we used to say, meaning pray until you hear from God. It's a yes or a no, but hear one way or another from him and continue to pray. And so in verse 44, it says, so he left them and went away and prayed a third time, which I know we already read, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. And one thing is true when we are prayerless. Sooner or later, that dark time will come upon us. Sooner, sooner or later, that day of temptation will face it. Because prayerlessness is just idle until it comes. But if we are in the habit of praying, even as Jesus was, then we will be ready when that hour of darkness comes our way. We will be ready when that temptation comes. Peter wasn't ready for it. He had been warned by it, but he wasn't ready for it. And so he said, rise, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so Jesus is betrayed in the garden. Let's read what it is here in Matthew, and we'll talk about what John says as well. Verse 47, but while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the 12, with a great multitude with swords and clubs. A great division, the Bible says in another place. This is many Roman soldiers. I've heard people use numbers like 300 or 600. I don't know, but it's a lot. The term division could not be a small number. They sent a lot of people to arrest this itinerant preacher that had been causing problems. And maybe because Judas said something to them like, you haven't seen what I've seen. You better bring a lot of men. 
We don't, you don't know what he can do. We better be armed. And so they bring clubs with them and they bring swords with them. And they came from the chief priest and the elders of the people. This is the Sanhedrin. This is the high priest who is Caiaphas, who is the son-in-law of Annas, who was the high priest. Annas was removed by the Romans and his son-in-law Caiaphas was put in his place, probably because he did a better job of complying with the Romans. But they are sent from him. And in verse 48, now his betrayer, and of course we know that this is Judas. And we talked about him last week when Jesus revealed to him that he would betray him. His name is Judah in the Hebrew. Here I go talking about original languages again. And it means praise. Judah means praise. When Judas was born, his mom and dad looked into that crib or thought, what are we going to name this baby when they were carrying it? Maybe they praised God when the baby was born. And so they said, let's name him Judah. Let's name him Praise. What a great name. What a great position to be one of the 12. And what a great waste. As Jesus said of him later, or earlier, he is the son of perdition. Literally the son of waste. And so now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one sees him. Immediately he went up to Jesus. And this tells us that Jesus didn't look different than all the other disciples. One thing about all of the movies about Jesus is you can look at the 13 of them and you can know who Jesus is. His robe is generally cleaner than everybody else's. His hair is a little bit neater. You might think if you saw the 13 walking down the road that you'd be able to pick out Jesus because he's the one that's glowing or the one that has a little halo or the one that has that super spiritual look on his face. But he looked like any other Jewish man in the first century. So much so that they had to hire someone to identify him. And so Judas goes up and kisses him. He says, whomever I kiss, that one sees him. And again, in the original language, it says, and don't let him go. Immediately, he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, Rabbi. Remember, that's what he said when he said, am I the one, is it me who could betray you, Rabbi? The other disciples, it says, is it me who could betray you, Lord? But he says, how about me, teacher? Because to Judas, he was a teacher, but he wasn't his Lord. It's like knowing about God, but not knowing God. It's learning from him, but not submitting to him. That's what Judas did not do. And so Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? Friend, even reaching out to him at this place, I believe that betraying Jesus was not an unforgivable sin. I don't think that Judas was forgiven because he didn't repent. But Jesus was reaching out to him even at the end. Another one of the Gospels, it says he said to him, you betray me with a kiss? And so Jesus was arrested. They wrapped him, his hands up with rope. They bound him. And they took him away. And as they started to take him away, Peter pulled out his sword. Peter had said, I will die with you. Even if none of these others die with you, I will die with you. And Peter pulls out his sword. And I assume he was going for Malchus's head. One thing the Bible says, that he chopped off the ear of the high priest servant, Malchus. It gives us his name. He didn't go after a Roman soldier. There's a whole division of Roman soldiers there. Peter was like, I don't think I could take him, but I could take him. 
And, and I think literally he's thinking, I'm going to fight to the death. I'm going to defend Jesus until I die. And I think he was probably going for Malchus's head. But he's a fisherman and not a swordsman, so he gets his ear instead. And the last miracle that Jesus ever does is to heal the ear of the man that one of his disciples cut off. I wonder how much damage we do trying to do the gospel of Christ. I wonder how often, however sincere, we end up not doing the right thing and Jesus has to come in and do some healing because we're just doing the wrong thing in the end. But in verse... Verse... Uh, well, let me read you this. I'll try to figure out what I mean. Then they came and they laid hands on Jesus. What is that, verse 50? Yeah, but Jesus said to them, friend, why have you come? And they came and they laid hands on Jesus and took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant with the high priest and he cut off his ear. But Jesus said, put your sword into its place for all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Now I used to think, why was that appropriate for Jesus to say that to Peter? But it was very appropriate for him to say it because Peter was trying to die by the sword and he has more for him to do. He, Peter is going to go on and work for the Lord and eventually he is going to die for him in Rome. History tells us that he was arrested, taken to Rome, and that at his request he was crucified upside down. There would be a way that he would die for him. He would die for Christ. But it wasn't then that God had that plan for him. He says, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? A legion is a thousand angels. Some say that a legion is 12,000 angels. If that would be like, that'd be like 72,000 angels. Even if it's the lower number, if a legion is 12,000 angels, that's a lot of angels. What was it? One angel killed 184,000 people in the Old Testament? One angel? These are a lot of angels that he could call on him. In other words, Jesus is letting us know that, that he is not being forced to the cross, that no Roman could take him, no Jewish person, no Jewish religious leader could hold him, that only Jesus could go and lay down his life for us, that he was not taking the wrath of the Father unwillingly, like a child who was being abused. The next time someone tries to tell you that God giving his son for sin on the cross is cosmic child abuse. You can respond to that by saying Jesus took it upon himself. It was a sacrifice. We, when, when someone stands in someone else's way and dies for them, we always see that as heroic. If a man pushes someone out of the way of a car and the car takes his life from him, we would say at his funeral, he is a hero. And so the next time someone says, God committed cosmic child abuse against God, you could say, Jesus became my hero. He stepped in front of the wrath of God for me so that I didn't have to take it. And as much as I don't like what happened to Jesus, I am very thankful that I or my children or my wife will not have to face the wrath of God, that you will not have to face the wrath of God. And Jesus is letting us know, I could call a legion of angels to rescue me. He could have stopped it on the cross had he, had he chosen to. He then says in verse 54, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that this must happen? It must happen thus. 
All of what's happening to Jesus from the time he is in the, in the upper room, in the garden, and, and into his, the night of being, being beaten and tried five different times, five trials, three Jewish uh, and two Roman, all of those things are foretold. And Jesus said it must happen thus. In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, now he turns after Peter, he rescues Peter from being arrested. He turns to the multitudes, he says, have you come out as against a robber? with swords and a club to take me. I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. But all this was done. Then all of his disciples forsook him and fled. The last thing that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane was the fulfillment of Scripture. The Bible says in Zechariah 13, 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Jesus quoted that to them earlier in the upper room. The shepherd will be struck and you will all scatter. And it is the fulfillment of Scripture. All of this was not only controlled by the Son choosing to step in front of judgment, but by the Father who planned it and wanted you to know. So he gave us Isaiah 53. He gave us Psalms 22 so that you and I would know that this rescue plan that has saved our souls, that has given us eternity, that has taken away the wrath of God, is planned by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Look at the last words there in our text. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled, all of them. We know that John and Peter regroup and follow him at a distance to the courtyard, but at this point, they all flee. In closing, I would like to return to prayer once again. Just in the way of encouragement, saying there's so much that happens in prayer, this has not been a study about prayer. We could, we could take six, seven, eight books, or there could you take six, seven, eight books to talk about prayer. E.M. Bounds wrote a book called The Power of Prayer, and if you've never read it, you can get it free on the internet now. It's a powerful book on how prayer works in our lives. But a, an encouragement again, not an odious, legalistic, you guys better get praying or else but that we would evaluate where we are. Maybe some of you will say, I'm, I'm great. Maybe some of you right now are saying, about time you start talking this way, preacher. Maybe some of you guys are all right. But as for me and maybe some of us here, maybe it's good to evaluate and to say, let me spend the rest of my life practicing prayer as Jesus did. Interacting, getting to know, listening to, and asking the Father to work and to intercede. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us all of this detail of these things that happened so long ago. And we are all encouraged by what we read here. And it's hard for us to hear that Jesus was pressed in the garden, that he was so full of agony that his sweat fell as great drops of blood on the ground. And we know that he carried our sorrow and our grief. And we know that he was chastised for our peace. And we are so thankful that he became a substitute for us that he took the penalty of death on that cross. And we ask that we would never be the same as we realize the great work that you have done. We give ourselves to you even as you gave yourself to us. And everyone who agreed said, Amen. 
Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.